I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On International Women's Day, President Biden issued an executive order establishing the White House Gender Policy Council. And the goal of the council is to advance a government-wide agenda to address the systemic factors that have led to gender-based inequality for women and girls. The Gender Policy Council will tackle everything from pay inequality to housing and childcare and gender-based violence, just to name a few. This is an historically large effort. And Jennifer Klein, the executive director and one of the co-chairs of the Gender Policy Council, joins me to walk through their goals and policy considerations, including several line items from the American Rescue Plan that will specifically help women recover from the economic effects of the pandemic. So here is my conversation with Jennifer Klein. Jennifer Klein, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So earlier this month, um, to be precise, it was on International Women's Day, President Biden signed an executive order establishing the White House Gender Policy Council. And I was so excited to hear about that because I don't think in my lifetime or any U.S. presidential you know, administration have they taken the step to actually formally create a council. What compelled President Biden to take this step? I think the president recognized really early on that while we have made progress in this country, there were still a lot of areas where there are pretty big gender disparities, um, and I would add racial disparities. And so what you will see is a theme throughout the administration, um, including through the creation of the Gender Policy Council, and also the work on race equity and justice that is happening really across the administration, but um, in particular with a focus at the Domestic Policy Council that he and, um, and others in the administration um, saw the need and um, and really a path forward to put these issues front and center as we confront a pandemic, an economic crisis, and by the way, on top of those challenges, a, a caregiving crisis in this country. Right, there is a caregiving crisis, and you know, tackling gender-based inequality and, and racial and gender-based inequality—that's that's huge, right? At the systemic level, it's really broad. And I know that your plan has lots of different different areas to you know branch out in. You know, it covers everything from you know housing inequality to disparities in STEM. You know, both in education and in the workplace. You know, is there a single policy or you know one or two policies that you think that, you know, if this passes, if this changes, you know, it will have the biggest impact? I, I wish the answer to that was were yes, but I don't think there is one silver bullet policy that uh, makes all the difference. I mean, I would also add, um, just before we jump into the policies, is the other thing you'll see across this administration, and it's related to the question you asked, because I think putting this the set of issues, whether it's gender equity or racial equity or the intersection between the two um, sort of at the center is super important. And one of the ways that that happens is who you appoint to your administration. So I think the you know historic diversity, both in the White House staff, but across the administration, you know, just today, the president announced his first slate of judicial appointments. Um, by the way, 11, um, the record of judicial appointments, you know, by this time before that was three. So, you know, first of all, jumping right in to write the federal judiciary. But second of all, when you look at that list of, um, of nominees, there's, again, you know, a historic commitment to diversity, um, gender diversity, but other sorts of diversity as well. Um, so again, you know, it matters who leads um, and it matters who's at the table. And I think you'll see that, you know, as we address any of these policy issues. I mean, to get to your question, as I said, there's not 
really um, one policy, I, I, as I said, I, I wish there were, but there's not. Um, but I think, you know, that, that, but sort of putting a lens of gender equity on top of a lot of different policies is really important. So what are we facing right now in this country? As we were talking about earlier, we're facing a pandemic, we're facing an ensuing economic crisis, and on top of that, a caregiving crisis. And this pandemic has exacerbated barriers that have held back women, especially women of color, for decades. Um, but what it has done is actually put the spotlight on this um, the, the, the situation that so many have faced for so long. You know, we're seeing women leaving the workforce, managing virtual schooling, additional caregiving responsibilities. None of that is new, but we are seeing it now in, in stark relief. And so in terms of priority, I think that it, it's not the silver bullet, but it is a set of issues and a set of policies that we need to take on right now to address these, these issues. You know, the other thing I would add is that we are seeing women on the front lines of the response to COVID-19. They are the essential workers who are in large part keeping our economies, our communities and our families going. And again, that's not new. Women have been in all of these fields that we are now depending on like healthcare, like childcare, grocery workers and other food service workers um, for a very long time. Um, often, you know, with uh, less good working conditions, um, less adequate pay than others. And, you know, again, just the, the pandemic has so um, magnified uh, what what women have experienced for, for decades, as I said, that it's just fair time to um, to take on that set of issues. Right. You know, speaking of the pandemic, um, you don't know how many op-eds I've read and, you know, data sets I've looked at, you know, showing this really grim economic picture for women and girls, right, specifically due to the pandemic. So this was a hard problem before the pandemic, and it's, you know, even greater now. I think the number is something like five and a half million women have lost jobs specifically due to the pandemic. What policies will help tackle the pandemic-specific problems that women face? Um, yes, I'm so glad you pointed out the, the job losses that women have sustained, um, you know, literally due in large part to the pandemic, there are millions fewer women working now than there were in February of 2020. And that literally brings women's labor force participation back to the late 80s. It's erased more than 30 years of progress that women have made in the labor force. So I think in terms of how to respond now, um, the first thing I would point to is the American Rescue Plan, which really is critical to helping women and their families get through this pandemic. And I can list off a lot of different policies. We can come back and talk about any of them, but just to give you a sense of the response that is really the American Rescue Plan. So, you know, number one, historic. It increases the child tax credit from $2,000 per child to $3,000 per child, $3,600 for a child under six and makes 17 year olds qualifying children for the year. So this means that a typical family of four with two young kids will receive an additional $3,200 in assistance to help cover costs associated with raising those children. And that would benefit, will benefit 66 million kids. The ARP also increases the earned income tax credit for 17 million workers by as much as $1,000. And that's the lifeline for many cashiers 
food preparers and servers, home health aides, those frontline workers that we were just talking about who've helped their communities and their families get through this crisis. The ARP expands childcare assistance, um, really helping the hard hit childcare providers who again are disproportionately women of color. It's, um, it'll also increase tax credits to help families cover the cost of childcare. And you know this is worth pausing on. It is the single biggest investment in childcare since World War II. You know, there's, as, as I said at the outset, there is so much in the American Rescue Plan that some of these things get lost. So I think it is really important to just pause on that for a minute. And that's not the only thing. So, you know, I'll just list off a couple of other things. An additional tax credit to help cut child care costs, which is refundable um, so that families can get a total of up to $4,000 for one child or $8,000 for two or more children. And then, of course, there's $130 billion to help schools serve all students, no matter where they're learning, and get those schools open safely. And together, I really think these historic actions will not only rescue our economy, but also support individual women and families. And, you know, again, a statistic or a fact worth highlighting, all of this will cut child poverty in half. And that was my next question, because I I keep hearing that phrase being repeated, you know, specifically that the rescue plan will cut child poverty in half. And I was curious as to, you know, what specifically within the plan does that? And I think I think the biggest thing is probably the child tax credits would probably carry the bulk of that. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Although, you know, really thinking about the uh, the benefits of the earned income tax credit as well. Um, and really those those that child care assistance. But yes, I think the child tax credit is a, you know, which as I said, benefits 66 million kids is a um, is a good piece of that huge ability to to cut child poverty in half. And if I could just mention one other thing, I mean, the, the American Rescue Plan is, as I said, front and center, um, providing that critical help to women. But you asked about policies. The other thing I would note is, you know, we last week celebrated, or I shouldn't say celebrated, I should say marked Equal Pay Day, which by the way, is only one of the equal pay days that we mark. This day marks the the amount into the next year that a woman has to work uh, in order to make the same amount that, you know, sort of the typical male makes in the year before. But it's also important to note that we mark other equal pay days because the pay gap is is worse for women of color. So it's about 82 cents on the dollar now for for white women. Um, It is about 63 cents on the dollar for black women, 55 cents on the dollar for Latino women, just to take a few examples. And that's why we mark this day um, on different days uh, over the course of the year, because it takes a lot longer if you're a black woman or a Latino woman, for example, to work to make the same amount that that white male made the year before. But, you know, when we mark Equal Pay Day, it's really important to note the policies that we can put in place to address the pay gap. So, you know, about 38 to 40% of that pay gap is due to discrimination, outright discrimination, which is, you know, again, a layer of gender and racial discrimination among other types of discrimination, disability, et cetera, ethnic, ethnicity. Um, but what that adds up to is, is the outright discrimination, which is you're doing a job, a man's doing the job, and he's literally getting paid more um, than you are to do you know, either the same or a very similar job. 
But what is also embedded within the pay gap, and when we talk about the pay gap, this is what also needs to be addressed, are some of the issues that we just talked around in the last few minutes. You know, number one is the jobs women do, right? There's this concept called occupational segregation. What does that mean? That means that women have historically, and again, predominantly women of color, have, have historically been in jobs that pay less. So those are jobs like home health aides, nurses, childcare providers, teachers. These are jobs that we are finally recognizing are essential. They, are, they have always been essential by the way, but, but we are naming them as essential um, during this pandemic. Um, and as a result of, um, of being in those lower field, paid fields, women are making less over the course of their career. And then the last piece of the thing that adds up to the pay gap is, um, is caregiving, which we've also just been talking about. You know, So because of additional caregiving responsibilities, that women take on, they are out of the workforce either intermittently, they work part-time, they drop out of the labor force entirely, and over the course of their careers, all of these factors add up to lower pay, less savings, and less economic security. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned, you're reading my mind here, because I'm so glad you mentioned discrimination (laughs) and occupational segregation, because I feel like a lot of the conversations I have around gender inequality, specifically economic inequality, are about just kind of lifting women out of poverty and lifting children out of poverty, right? You know, just, you know, to keep them afloat basically, right? And I do know that, you know, we've been having this conversation around the minimum wage. I do know that the majority of minimum wage earners are women. You know, is there anything that is in your slate of policies that will help women advance, right? You know, in leadership roles and management roles, you know, where women are also struggling? Yeah, I mean, so many of them is really the answer to that question. I mean, you you raise minimum wage, that's, that's obviously critical um, you know, there's a bill on the Hill right now called the Paycheck Fairness Act, which um, the president called for Congress to, uh, to pass, which would actually address um, some of these equal pay issues that we talked about. You know, literally um, things like pay transparency, right? It, it, it is illegal in some places um, for a person to talk to their colleague about what they're paid. And if you don't know that you're being paid less than your colleague, um, you're certainly um, not able to address it. And this is also true sort of more globally, if you think about you know, opportunities for to address this pay gap. And again, to your point, this is for women at all levels, right? This is the thing that often this and you know, other factors like caregiving, for example, the thing that you know, helps women to be able to advance to, um, to more leadership positions, right? Like the reason that we have a lack of diversity in leadership, even in corporate America, in political participation, um, is you know not entirely, but um, but in in large part because of the series of factors that we're talking about. So if you address those, so for example, you know what we know is companies that do what's called a pay audit, right? They look at their pay scale and look at the median of what they pay women. What often happens when they expose the gap is that they address the gap again. Transparency, this lack of secrecy that surrounds you know that it has historically surrounded you know this this inequity in pay once you bring that to light it starts to get solved so again there's sort of really immediate things and then there's really longer term things that you can do and again you know the the president in during the campaign he talked about the care economy he talked about you know the the things that we need to put in place things like child care things like paid family and medical leave um, help for um, the caregiving workforce that will again you know, be that long-term change that helps women um, be able to not only make an adequate living, but advance to your point in the workforce. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I'm curious as to how or whether you have a plan to get around trusting companies to, you know, act on good faith, right? I know that a lot of companies do do these audits and sometimes external audits are done, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that private companies, private corporations will act on them. I know for myself, just to use a personal example, we had a policy within a company that I worked for for years where you couldn't talk about your salary, right? And that had nothing to do, there's no government intervention. It was just a private internal policy, right? And I think that's how a lot of this, you know, occupational segregation and discrimination and inequality stays in place because there hasn't been any government oversight as to, you know, how companies tackle gender inequality? I think it's a, a combination. I mean, I, I mentioned the, the Paycheck Fairness Act, which would do exactly what you just talked about, which is require um, or, or prevent companies from retaliating against employees who do discuss their pay. You know, there was also a set of, um, of executive actions in place during the Obama administration, which were overturned in the Trump administration, um, which required reporting of pay data. Um, all of those things add up. So yes, um, you are exactly right that we can't entirely rely on companies individually to do the right thing. Many of them do, by the way, because the other thing that is really important to point out, and you know, many people in um, many employers, large and small, by the way, really understand um, that this is important to their bottom line, right? Like a lot of these policies are not just they are certainly about making um, people's lives better, about you know, ensuring fairness and equity in the workplace. They're also about bottom lines, right? Many of these policies are good for the company as well as good for the individual. And that's why I think you see companies more and more stepping up to actually take action without government regulation and without government requirements. And I think you know, those things together, as I, as I said earlier, there are things we can do right now and companies know that, know that and know it's good for them to, to take that, those steps. One of the things I know that you'll be working on is um, gender-based violence. And I know that that's something that President Biden has a history with in championing, you know, back in the mid-90s, you know, he wrote the Violence Against Women's Act. And we don't talk enough about the connection between economic inequality and, you know, gender-based violence. What do you see happening around that? Will there be an expansion of the Violence Against Women Act? Or, you know, how do you see that working? Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, you know, as you as you noted, this is an issue that this president has been committed to um, literally his entire career and was, as you said, um, really the author of the Violence Against Women Act. So, you know, exciting news. Uh, I think it was last week, maybe even the week before, um, the Violence Against Women's Act reauthorization passed the House and it now sits with the Senate. There is bipartisan support for VAWA. So I am really optimistic that we can get it reauthorized this year um, and that, you know, there are improvements to the act that can be made. And, you know, the president is really excited to be working with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle to get it done. You know, and I will also note that there's a lot of work to do on gender-based violence internationally as well. And that is also something that he has been integrally involved in throughout his career. So um, this Gender Policy Council actually crosses domestic and global borders. Um, and we will be working on really all of the issues that we're working on, whether that's economic issues, health issues, or gender-based violence, um, truly globally, both in the United States and around the world. Well, Jennifer Klein, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you um, for you know heading the Gender Policy Council. I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. And I will be looking forward to seeing that. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation.